you guys know how it is, okay? There's nothing really quite like a really good story. How many of you guys like stories? That's kind of a universal human language that we all speak regardless of where you live or what time or place you live at. We all love a good story. And here's the thing about a good story. When you hear it, it's got a wow factor. Somebody say wow factor. Say it with gusto, a wow factor. That's better. Now we're talking. We'll get the blood flowing today. When you hear a really good story for the first time, it's got the wow factor. You're, you're grappling with the details that you're hearing. You're saying, oh my goodness, did that really happen? How did that happen? Tell me more. You're on the edge of your seat. That's a wow factor. But a really good story does not stop there. It's not just a one and done. A really, really good story has the wow factor the second time and the third time and the fifth and the tenth and the umpteenth time you hear it. You still have the memories come back. You still laugh. You still cry. It still brings that flood of emotions. That's what a really good story does. For example, I'll give you one from Lori's side of the family. It's not really my story to tell, but she doesn't have the microphone strapped to her head and I do. So... Here's one that comes up in Lori's family. Our dear Lori, this is true, she was born in a car on the side of the road. This is news to her. She didn't quite make it to the hospital. And there she was. And when people over the years have heard that story for the first time, their jaw drops a little bit and they say, are you serious? What happened? And Lori says, I don't know. I don't remember. But if they ask her parents, they say, well, here's the story. And they're grappling. Oh, my word, seriously. Tell me more. How does that even happen? Uh, but again, it's not just a one and done. I won't tell you how old Lori is, but she's very young. She's just great. She, uh, all the years that I've known her, this story keeps coming up, even within her family. Usually every year around her birthday, someone, you could set your watch to it, will say, yep. And you know what's coming when someone says, yep, there's a story coming. It was right about this time, X, Y, Z, years ago, that we were driving in to the hospital, but not going to make it to the hospital, and I remember being so panicked, and the story still gets retold and relived, because it's a really good story. You can ask her about it sometime, but again, she won't remember any of the details. Thank you. Today in God's Word, we are going to read a story. It's a really, really big story. It's actually more than a story. This is something that really, truly, honestly happened in the life and ministry of Jesus. And it's a really good one. And if you are here today and you're going to be hearing it for the first time, I promise you there's a wow factor. And when you grapple with the details of what is in this story, you're going to be saying, wow, did this, how did this happen? Wow, Jesus, that's awesome. Now, many of us in the room have heard this story before. And again, I will declare to you, there's still a wow factor for me in this story. Every time I read it, I say, oh my word, this, this is our Jesus that we're talking about. So with that, let's read a story together this morning, shall we? I would invite you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 11, verse 1. I'm going to be reading it, and on the screen it will be from the English Standard Version. Whatever version you got on you is good as well. We're going to read all the way from verse 1 to the end of verse 44. It's a long one, but it's a good one. Here it goes. It says this, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. Somebody say Lazarus. 
Now, I want you to be honest with me a second. How many of you, you've been hanging around church for a while, how many of you have called him Lazarus by mistake? That should be every hand. Don't lie to me here. We're in the presence of the Lord. I don't know what it is, if it's just because the word Nazareth is in the Bible some. I've definitely said Lazarus. That is not his name. And if I say Lazarus today, you're not allowed to judge me, okay? No judging. I don't judge you when you say it wrong. You don't judge me either, okay? Lazarus of Bethany, which was the village, village, I said village wrong. Oh, this is going well. Of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. By the way, that hasn't actually happened yet. We're going to read that in chapter 12. The sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so that when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. That's where Bethany was. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples did not get it. They said, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of Lazarus' death, but they only thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus, kind of getting impatient with them, he said to them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Pause right there. If you have read this before, and if you're anything like me, you'll have said to yourself, what in the blue blazes is Thomas talking about in that verse? What kind of random statement is that? Let's go, boys. Let's go die with Lazarus random. What is wrong with this guy? And I got looking into this more because it was so random to me. I was really struggling what to make of that. And it hit me. I said, Thomas actually isn't talking about Lazarus there. He's talking about Jesus there. So what looks like a super random misguided statement is actually a profession of his allegiance to Jesus. It's actually an act of devotion. You see, It's a little bit pessimistic, though, because remember we read in verse 8, Jesus said, I'm going to Judea, and the boys say, "Uh, Lord, you were just there, and the leaders were seeking to stone you there. You're going to go back? Well, Thomas is essentially saying, you're going to go there, and it's a suicide mission. You're going to die. We might all die. That's not really what happened, but he's a doomsday, kind of worst-case scenario guy, obviously. But don't miss the fact that he's professing his allegiance. He's saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you even if it costs me, even if it costs me everything. I was glad that I got some light on that verse because I really, really had no idea before what he was talking about. Anyway, let's continue. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. 
So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, this is a big important part of the text. We're definitely going to come back to this. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Somebody say, that's a large verse. Do you believe this, he says. And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Then the shortest verse in the scriptures, John eleven thirty five, it says, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man, we read that in John chapter nine a couple weeks ago, also have kept this man from dying. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. Pause. I told you, we're reading from the ESV. I'm an ESV guy. I don't read something like the King James a lot, but the King James version gets this verse so right. It says that by now he stinketh. That's just a cool word, right? He stinketh, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. That's a big story, isn't it? Lord, help us get onto this program of your word. Come and speak to us through your word today. Holy Spirit, we're listening. We're ready in Jesus' name. Amen. So I got four things to share with you this morning by way of unpacking this long story. Four things to share. Let's begin with the first one that we see in here. The first thing I want to show you from this story is this. Number one, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's fully God and he's fully man. Now, if you've been hanging around lately, you'll have heard us hammering away at the he's God part. 
Matter of fact, the sermon last week was 50 minutes long, and it was literally called Jesus is God and Why That Matters. So we've been hammering away on that. And you see it again in this text as well. You have to see the Godness of Jesus in this story. For one, he is totally sovereign over this whole situation. There's not one moment of this where Jesus kind of loses his grip on the rope. Right at the beginning, they come to him and they say, Lord, big situation happening. Lazarus is ill. And Jesus says, mm, it doesn't lead to death. Don't worry. Right? That's, that's a God-sized claim that he makes. Later on, when he says to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. We've talked about the I am thing. Here's another one that's a claim to be God. And we're going to unpack that further later. And then obviously, the piece de resistance, thank you for the French, Braden, you're welcome, of, of this story in verse 43, he says to Lazarus, who's been dead for four days, the guy's dead, okay? This is not, oh, we misdiagnosed or we just didn't have a heartbeat for a couple minutes. The guy's dead. He's dead. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And at the command of Jesus' word, he did not even modern medicine or some operation or some trick. By the word of his power, this man who was dead, dead, rises up. That is a God move right there. You've got to see it all the way through the story. But what I don't want you to miss, what I was really feeling the sense of this week was not only is Jesus fully God, and we would do well to understand that, but he's fully man. We can't forget that he's both. He's a, it's a both and. And you can really see the humanity of Jesus in this text. Uh, there's a, a, a section of scripture in another place that says that Jesus had to be made like us, human, in every way. I mean, the only difference is that he didn't sin, and we have sinned. You can see his humanity all through this though. For one, it says he has friends. Like a normal human being person, he had friends. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, he said in verse 11. Jesus here, you can see the love that he has for people. And, and we talk about the love of God, and I mean, that definitely applies here, but, but just think of how you love other people in your life, the friends and the family and, and loved ones that you have. It's the same deal here. In verse three, he whom you love is ill. It says in verse five, he loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. In verse 36, the people see Jesus weeping and they say, see how he loved him. That's, that's something that we have as well as human beings. Jesus showed emotion like a regular person like we do, except he did it without sinning. Again, in verse 33, Mary has just said to him, if you hadn't been here, had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And it says Jesus was deeply moved. Have you ever been deeply moved before? I have. That's a human emotion. In verse 35, it says that he wept. We've all wept before, I'm sure. Verse 38, the crowd is there. He sees them. He's deeply moved again. You have to see the humanity of Jesus here. And why that's important, friends, is because he can relate to us. He can identify with us. It says in Hebrews chapter four that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. And, and, and this really brings it home because what this is telling us is Jesus isn't just some cold, distant force or something like that. He is a real, personable, 
personal, relatable God, and he wants a relationship with us. And that sets him apart. There's nobody like Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus who, who is at the same time God in authority over us, but he's also God with us. Again, that's different from any other religious figure you can set up. Sometimes they claim to be one or the other. Jesus is fully both. He's fully God and he's fully man. At the same time, he's God and he's our friend. He's the king and he's someone that wants to walk with us. He's God over all and he wants a relationship with you. Isn't that cool? Somebody say that's cool. Don't leave me hanging up here today just because I think it's cool. Jesus is fully God and fully man, so we can relate to him in a very deeply personal way. I just think that's super awesome. So that's number one. Number two is this. God's ways are higher than your ways. You say, I beg your pardon? Yeah, even your ways. While Jesus, being fully human, can relate to us and he empathizes with us, and he was made like us as a human being. At the same time, he operates on a totally different wavelength than we do sometimes. If you've been a Christian long enough, you'll have seen this in your life. And you can see a few occurrences of this through this text that we read today. The first one, you can see it up on the screen already. God sees our troubles differently than we see them a lot of the time. Again, they approach Jesus at the beginning of this text. They say, Lord, we got a problem. We got an issue. Lazarus is ill. He's not doing well. That's a problem, right? That's a trouble. And Jesus says, this illness doesn't lead to death. He's gonna be fine. Here's the thing. As we've read this story, the illness did lead to death. So what does that mean? Was Jesus just wrong? Was he out of touch with what was going on? No, what it means is, see, he didn't deny the fact that Lazarus was ill. He just said this illness doesn't lead to death. God sees the whole picture and we don't. We see the trouble. We don't see what comes after the trouble. We don't see what comes down the road. But Jesus does. And typically, when you and I, I know I'm talking to somebody today, when you and I are in a trouble or a rough situation, what we say is, Lord, things aren't going well, I'm going down, right? That's how I feel sometimes. Lord, this ship is sinking right here. But what Jesus is saying here is, hey, you're in a trouble, but rather than just say, I'm going down, it's an opportunity for you to look up. And how often have I been in trouble and I have not viewed it like that? I want to just be in it and stew in it and I'm miserable and uh, and God says, why don't you look to me in this situation? That's what Jesus is encouraging us, encouraging us to do. You remember in verse four, I'm going to read it again right here. Big verse that we read in this text. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. So your mess is actually something that God looks at and says, this is an opportunity for me to show up and do something in. I wonder, is that how you're seeing your mess today? You don't have to answer that out loud. But it's just a reminder, right? There, there is literally always purpose in our pain. God's not gonna waste any of it. He's gonna use all of it. 
And he may not use it the way that you want him to use it. Sometimes we're in trouble and we're praying, Lord, here's how I think this should go. He may not answer it in that way. But he's faithful and he shows up and he shows off and he shows his power. Some of you guys, that's your testimony. You've been a Christian, you were in trouble, and God just showed up and he intervened. Because that's what he does. That's what he's like. What is interesting about him saying that, this is for the glory of God that the Son may be glorified in it, the situation that's surrounding this is somebody dying. Death is involved. And what I want to just make the connection in your mind of is this. There's no problem in your life that is too big or too deep for Jesus. Like Lazarus here was not having relationship trouble. He was not having money trouble. He literally was gonna die. A dire situation. One of the biggest situations, obviously, in our lives. And Jesus says, I'm gonna show up in this. And I just think that's so interesting because in our lives, we sort of sometimes will pronounce a death sentence in certain areas of our lives. Sometimes that's exactly what we do. We say, God, I'm broken and I don't think I'm ever gonna be fixed. God, my marriage is over. It's ruined, it's toast. God, I'm hurt and I can't be healed. And what he's saying is, look up, look up. It's for the glory of God that the son may be glorified in it. Again, that area in your life that you might think is dead and gone and over, I'm not saying just name it and claim it today. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm saying, remember our God. This could be the exact area that God is ready and willing and able to speak into your life and to do something in your life. If we would seek him, if we would ask him, if we would honor him, if we would pursue him and regard him, because that's what he does. He sees our troubles differently than we do. That'd be a good place for an amen, my friends. Amen. Another thing that he does, he, he, his timing is different than ours. Again, if you're a Christian, you've seen this to be true time and time again. They come to Jesus here. They say, Lord, Lazarus is sick. It's bad. Please come and help. And look how he responds. He stays two days longer where he was already at. They probably thought Lazarus is sick fire up the automatic car starter, we're going right now. He goes, okay, I'm gonna leave in a couple days. I can just imagine their faces, right? What do you mean you're staying here? God, don't you know that I'm in a situation? Yep. Don't you know that it's urgent and dire? Yep. But this is his timing sometimes. And, and unfortunately, looking at the guy in the mirror as well, we sometimes don't think that God is working fast enough, do we? We're looking around. The, the ship appears to be sinking all around us. Lord, any time now would be great. And he says, I got you, don't worry. And we say, are you sure? You sure you didn't forget about me or forget something somewhere? But again, I would say, remember, his ways are higher than our ways. You don't see the whole picture. And there's a whole Bible full of occasions where people didn't trust God's timing and they ran ahead of him and took matters into their own hands and it always turns out to be a mess. You think about, for instance, in the book of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah, God says, you're gonna have a baby. And they're like, we're old, we're not having a baby. And God says, no, I'm telling you the truth, you're having a baby. And then they wait, no baby, no baby. And they say, well, I have an idea. Abraham, why don't you go and sleep with your servant 
and she'll get pregnant and there's your baby. That's not what God's will was. And if you read that, it turned into a mess. And I'm, I wonder, that's probably the same truth in our lives as well. I can definitely think of times. If I just waited on the Lord, it probably would have gone a little better for me because his timing is different than mine. So I would ask you this this morning for internal reflection. What are you restless about in your life right now? What are you praying for and it doesn't seem like you're getting the answer? Where does it seem like your timing and God's timing are, are not lining up and are not on the same page? There's a really good verse that speaks to what we can do in those situations. It's a famous verse. It's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. It says, they who wait, somebody say wait. They who wait on the Lord will have their strength renewed. And that's a great verse because it means a couple of different things. Number one, if you will just wait, Braden, and don't jump out of the starting gate before God and his timing, if you would just wait and choose to be patient and wait on God, your strength will be renewed because eventually God's timing is going to click in and it's his, it's his perfect and pleasing will. His timing is always the best timing. It's always the best for us. If I would just wait and wait for his timing to click in, I'd be strengthened because it would go better for me and I would avoid putting myself into a mess because I jumped out of the starting gate too early. That's one way we're strengthened. The other way is this. When we wait upon the Lord, say we're here and we want our timing to happen right now and God's timing is way up here a long time from now. Well, what you can do is as you're waiting on the Lord and you're walking with the Lord in the waiting, you're gonna grow closer to him. You're gonna be strengthened in him. You're gonna grow more wise and mature in him so that by the time his timing does click in, you haven't just wasted all this time fussing and fretting. You've used it to get closer to God. And now his timing's clicked in and you're that much closer to him. Strength will rise when we wait upon the Lord. It's hard to wait. Sometimes I'm not very good at waiting, but that's the promise. His timing is different than ours. Another thing that we see in this text we've read today in John 11 is that just straight up, generally speaking, I love you, you're very smart people, but God simply knows better than you do. He just knows better. I don't care how wise or experienced or smart you are, you may be all of those things. God still knows better. Even in your area of strongest expertise, God knows better. Remember I said in verse seven, he says to the disciples, we're going to Judea, boys. Fire up the car. And they reply by saying, uh, Lord, hello. You can almost hear them kind of puffing their chest out. Lord, that, that doesn't sound like a good idea. Are you sure about that? I don't think that's what should happen here. And Jesus essentially says, I wasn't asking for your opinion. I'm telling you that's what's going on. And again, in our lives, we do this too. God will speak. God will reveal something to us, perhaps in his word. But we decide we know better. Yeah, God, I know that I'm supposed to love that person. But you don't know how annoying they are. I know I'm supposed to forgive that person, but you don't know how bad they hurt me. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to stay pure in my sexuality, but you don't understand what it feels like. He's not looking for an argument. 
God knows better than you do. And when we come along and say or say with our actions, no, actually, God, I know better than you, that's literally the source of a great percentage of our messes in life come from that pride and that moment and that arrogance right there. If we would just humble ourselves and say, Lord, I trust you, your will be done, your ways are higher than my ways, we would be so much better off. So before we move on to point number three, you say, well, what am I supposed to do with all that? Okay, okay, God sees my troubles differently than I do. His timing's different than mine. He knows better than I do. What am I supposed to do with all that? Here's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to look to Jesus. I'll, I'll explain. In verse nine of John 11, I'm gonna read it out of here. He says, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees what? The light of this world. That phrase should be ringing the bell in your minds, friends, because we've seen that the last number of weeks. That's a title that Jesus gives himself, the light of the world. John 8, 12 is the first one where he says it, and we've seen it a few times since then. That's code for Jesus. What he's saying is if anyone sees the light, if anyone looks to Jesus, he does not stumble. Now, of course, he's not meaning, if you look to Jesus, nothing bad is ever gonna happen to you. No, but what he's saying is you're going to be strengthened. It's going to go better for you. You're going to be okay if you keep your eyes on me is what he's saying. In those moments of waiting, in those moments of doubting, in those moments of, Lord, I don't think you're right, but I'm gonna trust you, you're going to be okay if you keep your eyes on Jesus. But conversely, look what he says. He says, if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So in your life, this is super practical, I'm just telling you. When you get into a phase in your life, in your walk, and you take your eyes off of Jesus, you stop regarding Jesus, I don't really care what you say, what you think, I'm gonna do it my own way, I'm gonna lean on my own understanding, that's where the stumbling comes in. We put ourselves in far too many and far more than we need to places where we stumble and get ourselves off the path simply because we stop looking at the light. So straight up, in your day-to-day life, are you regarding Jesus? Are you pursuing Jesus? Are you growing in your walk, in your relationship with Jesus? Because that is the key. It's all about Jesus. Another good place for an amen. Thank you. Now, let's move on to number three. This one, I think, is kind of timely. Um, Because we've lost a couple people, even just immediately connected to our church family in the last few weeks, couple months. I want to talk about Jesus and your grief. Somebody say grief. Grief means a deep distress from dealing with a loss. You're in deep distress because you're dealing with a loss that has happened. This is what's happening in John 11. They approach Jesus. Martha comes to him and she says, Lord, Lazarus is dead at this point. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's hurting. You can almost hear that. Like, why weren't you here? Why did you wait to come? She's grieving. Mary says the same thing in verse 32. If you were here, my brother would not have died. In verse 37, the people who are surrounding Jesus and grieving, they say, couldn't this man have kept 
Lazarus alive. What happened? There's grief and accompanying the grief here, there's almost a sense of, I won't say anger, but there's questioning. Lord, where were you? Why didn't you come through for me? Sometimes that's part of our grieving as well. And by the way, I'm not just talking about grieving a death. We can grieve all sorts of things. Distress from being in a loss. Maybe you had your health and you lost it and you're grieving that. Maybe you had a job and you lost it and you're grieving it. Maybe you had a relationship and you lost that and you're grieving it. Maybe you had finances and you lost them because diesel is $3 a liter this morning and you're grieving that. That was funny, by the way. Thank you. Here's the thing. We see the grief all through this, and grief obviously is something we all go through. What I love about Jesus in this text, he shows something about his character here. When these people are grieving, first of all, he goes to them. I want you to know that this morning. If you're grieving, Jesus' desire is to be with you in your grief. You're not alone. You're not isolated. He wants to be with you in it. Additionally, while these people were in their grief, and again, they were, they were saying some pretty hard things to him. Why weren't you here? Questioning, potentially a little bit bitter toward him. You know what Jesus does? He doesn't say, uh, excuse me, remember who I am. Don't talk to me that way. And he leaves. No, he, he goes deeper with them in the questions, in the doubts, in the wondering, in the grief. Sometimes we have this impression in our lives. We say, oh, if I question God in any way in my life, even just asking the question to him, why, he'll be upset at me and and, and this and that and whatever. Well, here we see right here, Martha, why weren't you here? And Jesus presses in. He says, hey, your brother's gonna rise again. He encourages her. He reveals himself to her in that, even as she goes deeper into her grief. Mary, the same thing. Why weren't you here? And it says that Jesus was deeply moved. He, he goes in deeper with her. The crowd is weeping. Jesus is moved again. That is language, friends, that shows us that Jesus is ready and willing and able and wants to meet you in your grief. Even if your grief is accompanied by questions, maybe doubting, wondering, God, why me? Why this? Why now? What happened? Jesus wants to meet you in that place. What he's not saying is, okay, you're grieving, get over it, take a week, take two weeks, then come back to me and we'll roll on, we'll continue. No, part of your walk with Jesus is letting him in to your grief, not keeping him out, but letting him into your grief, into that process, and then experiencing the special mercy and the grace that he has for you in that moment. That's why it says he has grace for us in our hour of need so we can boldly approach his throne. Even if you're wondering why he didn't show up or why he didn't answer your prayer the way you wanted to. That doesn't mean you've got to run from him. And I've seen that. We've all seen that. Oh, this person was walking with Jesus, but then this bad thing happened and they got mad at him and they ran away. That's not what we need to do. He's inviting. That's Jesus' heart towards your grief. Finally, The fourth point, oh, this one's big. This one's big. I want to talk about the truth about death and the afterlife. Good land. I literally, somebody's eyes up here were just wide. (laughs) Excuse me. This week, I was reading this text, and the Lord, not in an audible voice, but he said to me, you guys got to cover this on Sunday. And I said, are you sure? He said, yes, because 
there is a great deal, certainly outside the church, but even within the church, there's a great deal of ignorance about what actually happens with this. A lot of people who aren't Christians, they don't even think there is an afterlife, for one. They say, no, this, what you see is what you get. When you die, you're, you're buried in the ground, and that's the end of you. That's not what the Bible says. Some people will say, oh, well, all paths lead to heaven, so when I die, hey, I'm good, come what may, all roads lead to heaven. No, that's not what the Bible says either. Even Christians, I was this Christian. I, I've been in church my whole life, and until I really started grappling with this in recent years, I had no idea what the Bible actually said about death and dying and what happens after that. I don't. I just assumed, well, I don't know. I'm a Christian. I'll go to heaven when I die. Like, if I died right now, I'd immediately be in heaven with the Lord. Cool. I want you to track with me on this, but that's not even super what the Bible says either. I am sure I'm going to get some emails about this this week. But what I want to do is I want to just unpack. I want to just show you what the Bible says about this. Will you allow me some time to show you what the Bible says? Thank you. I'm taking it anyway, sister, but we're having it. Okay, so here's, let me begin with this. This claim about, oh, well, all people go to heaven, or if I died right now, I'd go to heaven. First of all, let's talk about heaven. Heaven, biblically, at least right now, heaven is the place where God dwells, and people don't really dwell there. I'll explain all of this, but you can see in Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See the distinction there? Heaven is his throne, and we live on the earth. And a verse uh, earlier in the Gospel of John, it's John 3.13, it says, Jesus said, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, if you died right now, that's not where you're gonna go. There are the very rare exception to that, by the way. You read about a guy like Elijah in the Bible, it says he was whisked off to heaven. He never died. He just went to heaven. But that's far and away the exception, not the norm. Generally speaking, that verse, John 3, 13, no one just ascends into heaven except for the Son of Man. We'll explain all this. Don't worry. Don't throw anything at me yet. That's just a brief thing of heaven, okay? Now, next question you might ask, okay, well, what happens when people die? Lord, help me today on this. I love it. There's so much misconception about death. Oh, my word. And again, to be fair, until you experience it, like none of us really know what it's like, of course, but there's so much misconception. Here's how I'll begin this, okay? When people die on the earth, happens all the time. Unless Jesus returns first, it's gonna happen to you. It's gonna happen to me. When people die on the earth, the Bible refers to that as the first death, they go to a place, oh, they go to a place called Sheol. Somebody say Sheol. I always read that word like it was a negative, like that was hell. It's this bad word. I'm looking at that. That word Sheol simply means, it's a neutral word. It means the place of the dead. The place of the dead. Neither good nor bad. It's just the place of the dead. You go there when you die. That's what the Bible talks about. And the Bible seems to give language as though there are two sort of areas, sections. I've seen the word compartments before about this place called Sheol. There's a righteous component and there's a part for the unrighteous. Those are the two categories here. 
the righteous part of Sheol. Here's how we can describe it. Here's what we know about it. Again, there's a lot of gray here. But what we do know about it is that the presence of Jesus is there. That's why it says in Philippians 1.3 that when we depart from the body, we're with the Lord. See that? You're gone from the body, you're with the Lord. My personal favorite on this is Luke 23.43. You'll know this story. Jesus is on the cross. Thieves hanging next to him. One guy is giving him the gears, but the other guy, the thief on the cross, he professes his faith in Jesus there. He, he aligns himself to Jesus there and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to him? Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I always loved that verse. So that shows us that to be out of the body as a righteous person, we'll talk about righteous and unrighteous, to be out of the body as a righteous person is to be with the Lord. That's what it says. Now, it's also a place of rest. It says in Revelation 14, 13, blessed are those who die in the Lord for they will rest from their labors. That's a good thing. Some of the, the uh, ambiguity comes in and, and Christians have argued and debated about this over the years. People will say, well, when you go to this place, whatever you call it, Sheol or the righteous part or paradise it's called, whatever you call it, when you're there, are you aware and awake and knowing what's going on or are you asleep? And here's what I would just say to you about that. This is an open-handed issue. This is not something that every Christian agrees on and that's okay. That's okay. Some people look at the scriptures and they say, no, it seems like what the scriptures are saying is when you're there, you're awake, you're alert, you're conscious, you know what's going on. And I would personally, this is my opinion only, I would tend more toward that because when Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, that kind of speaks of something experiential, right? It doesn't super track with me as much to think you'll be with me in paradise means you'll be asleep and not know what's going on. But again, I could be wrong. We'll find out someday. That'll be fun, won't it? We'll talk about it someday long from now. Anyway, it's not even the most important part of the question, though. Are you awake or are you asleep during this? And I'll tell you why, because this state is temporary. We're going to come back to that. This is temporary state. But that's what happens with the righteous. It's a good thing. It's Jesus is there. It's a place of rest. Those are things that sound really good to me. I didn't rest very much last night, so that kind of does sound like paradise to me. But anyway, that's a new parent thing. You can pray for me. Let's talk about the unrighteous. There is a place in Sheol, the place of the dead, where the unrighteous go. This one's uh, referred to in 2 Peter chapter 4 as a place of gloomy darkness. So not as good of a place. It's a place of torment. It says in Luke chapter 16, you remember reading this, it's, it's a parable of the rich man and the guy dies and it says he goes down into Hades. Hades is a term for this unrighteous part of Sheol. By the way, pause. If you're like, what is this guy talking about? Go and read the scriptures yourself this week. Just telling you. Anyway, resuming, it says that the, the rich man died and went to Hades, Sheol, and he was tormented. It's not a good place. It's not the place where you want to be. Now, as I said a minute ago, here is the important part to know about the place of the dead, the first death. It is temporary. Somebody say temporary. It's temporary whether or not you're a righteous person or an unrighteous person. That is nobody's permanent state, okay? 
Now, also, you can't just get up, though, on your own and waltz out of Sheol. That's not how it works. You are going to be there when you die for however long it is until a certain event takes place. And that event is called the resurrection. Somebody now say resurrection. Here's where it gets good, folks, now. You've been with me. Here's where it gets really good. Martha alludes to this in John chapter 11. She says, yes, Lord, I know that my brother will rise again on the last day in the resurrection. So she is aware of this concept that we're talking about. We all die. We all go to the place of the dead, one part of it or another. And just like we all do that, we will all, all be resurrected one day. You say, what day is that? When does that happen? It's called the day of the Lord. On the day of the Lord, we will all be resurrected. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it says that Jesus is coming back, friends. Is that good news that he's coming back? It is if you're a righteous person. We'll talk about that. It says he's coming back at the blast of a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, uh, it says in Revelation 20, verse 13, that the rest of the dead are also raised. Everybody who's dead is going to be raised. And what's going to happen is we are going to go and stand before God at his throne to be judged. Judgment happens on the day of the Lord. It says in Acts 17, 31, that God has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness through Jesus Christ. And on that day, there are two categories. Guess what? They're the same categories we've already talked about. There's righteous and there's unrighteous. Those are the only two options. It says, again in Revelation 20, that all people are gonna stand before his throne, that books are gonna be opened. One of those books is called the Lamb's Book of Life. And we're all gonna be judged. And what happens is, if a person's name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, Jesus' book of life, they are declared unrighteous. And they are cast out. It says in Matthew 25, 46, that they are sent to eternal punishment. Matthew 25, 41, it says they are sent to the place of fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. This is called the second death. The second death is permanent. See it right there? Eternal punishment. There's no end to that. On the other hand, on that day of judgment, some will stand before the Lord and be declared not unrighteous, but righteous because their name is found in the Lamb's book of life. We're gonna talk more about the righteousness thing. I'm getting there, don't worry. It says that on that day, the righteous will go away to eternal life. Matthew 25, 46. For the righteous person, the person who is declared righteous in the sight of God, it says there is no second death. Does not affect those people. And it says that on that day they will go into eternal life. It's a place where all is made new. All is made right. All is made well. It's a place where the new heavens, I'm gonna actually read it to you. Revelation chapter 21. Oh, I should have bookmarked this. 
Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth, that's where you're living now, had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And it goes on to say, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more, no mourning, no crying, no pain for the former things have passed away. That is what's gonna happen for the righteous on the day of judgment. And by the way, it's not only that. If you are a righteous person and you stand before God to be judged and the books are consulted and there's your name in the book of life, you're still gonna be judged, but it's not whether or not you're gonna go to eternal life or death. Your name's in the book, you're going to eternal life. Here's what you get judged on as a Christian on the day of judgment. You're getting judged on that day to determine your reward in heaven. I sat in church for years, I never knew this. It was probably my fault. People probably told me, but I just might not have listened or got it. But this is what it says. Revelation chapter 11, verse 18. I'm not gonna find it. I'll just sum it up for you. It says that when believers stand before the Lord, they're going to be judged based on the things they did on this earth to determine their reward in heaven. I always assumed heaven is just a static. Everybody gets the very same. You know, when you're like at a, at a, I don't know, a conference and there's a lunch and everybody gets the same slop of mac and cheese in the bowl. It looks the same for everybody. Heaven is not really that way. That's why it tells us to store up our treasure in heaven. Do you know why it says that? Because there's treasure in heaven. And it's more than just, well, I'm here and that's good. It's gonna be good for everybody. But when you store up, when you bind and loose on the earth, it's affected in heaven. So you're going to have a greater or a lesser degree of reward in heaven based on what you're doing in your life right now. Okay, we're not talking about earning your salvation. It's secure, but your reward. I just think that's super cool. That's why it matters what you do as a Christian. That's why it's not, well, I got saved. Lord, allow me to just sit here and twiddle my thumbs and sit on my rump until you come back. No. One of the reasons why no is because your reward is at stake. Let's go, people, Okay. We good on that? Let's keep rolling. We like rewards. On that day of judgment for the righteous and our rewards are determined, it says the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem all appear. And what's interesting here, remember earlier I said people don't just go to heaven. That's where God dwells. There's heaven and there's earth. Well, in the new creation that God is preparing if you read Revelation 21, there's far less distinction between heaven is where God is, earth is where we are. They're all sort of used almost interchangeably because God is there fully in his presence and we are there fully whole. And it's, it's amazing. So the dwelling place of God is with man. That's where heaven and earth finally meet in full consummation. What a day that's gonna be and what an eternity that's gonna be. It never ends, people. Are you excited about that day as a Christian? Yes. yes, good, right answer. Last thing I gotta share with you and then I'm gonna get out of your way. Really important question to ask. How do I know which camp I belong to? All right, there's the righteous there's the unrighteous, one sounds pretty pleasant, one sounds pretty miserable. How do I know which one I belong to? And here's what I would say, friend, it depends entirely, 100% of the way, it depends on what you say about Jesus. All the way. It's not about your family of origin or your political allegiance or how many 
good versus bad deeds you did. It's not about what family uh, you were born into. Like I said, it's not about, well, I think I'm a nice person or I did this nice thing. It's all about your faith in Jesus. That is the only factor that matters in determining whether you will be declared righteous or unrighteous. It's all about Jesus. That's why he can say in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. It is all about him, all through this. You need to know today, friends, that Jesus, the son of God, God himself, he came to the earth. He lived a perfect, sinless life that we have failed to live. He was totally righteous. He died on a cross to pay for your sins. He, he took on the full weight of God's wrath for your sin on the cross. I'm giving out here. He died for you. He is righteous. The righteous died for the unrighteous. And what's really cool is that he took on the full weight of our sin. Our unrighteousness was heaped upon him. He died, but he rose. He was raised to life on the third day. Resurrection. He is called the first fruits, the firstborn of the dead. He says, because I live, so also will you live. Since Jesus was risen, we believe that we are going to be risen as well. And the whole thing comes down to this. Will you, have you, won't you accept that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's done what he says he's done? that he died in your place to set you free, that he rose again in victory. When you believe that, when you accept that, when you align yourself to Jesus and repent of your sin, turn around, <coughs> when, you, when you surrender your life to him, when you put your faith and your confidence in him, the Bible says that's what makes you righteous. Righteousness is like a garment that covers us. Jesus, here's what happens. You in and of yourself are not righteous. I love you, but you're not. Left to your own devices. I am not righteous. But through faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness gets credited, counted to us. It's like putting on a garment of his righteousness. So even though in and of myself, on my own, I am not righteous and I know exactly where I should be going because of what Jesus has done and the faith that we express in him, he says, righteous. The stamp is put on there, the rubber seal, and it's not coming off. If you believe in Jesus Christ today, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, you know exactly what's going to happen to you in death and the afterlife. There's no mistaking it today. I'll say this on the flip side by way of warning. If you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you have never put your faith and your confidence in him, you now know exactly what's going to happen to you in death and the afterlife. And it's not good. But God does not want it to be that way. He has made means available to you to be saved, to change not only your fate now and here, but for eternity. His name is Jesus, friends. But the point is this, and then I'm coming down. We need to be prepared. Jesus is coming back. Death is coming for us all, the first death. The resurrection is gonna happen. The judgment is gonna happen. The new heavens and the new earth are gonna happen for the righteous. Eternal punishment is gonna happen for the unrighteous. You need to make sure as long as today is called today that you are on the right side of the fence and Jesus is inviting you today to put your faith and your trust in him if you have never. 
all of this, this whole thing, the whole story we've read today is all about Jesus. We gotta trust in him now. We gotta trust in him that he is not only God over us, but God with us. We gotta trust in him in our day to day that his ways are higher than our ways. We gotta trust in him in our moments of grief and despair and discouragement. And certainly we've gotta trust him with our eternal future that is at stake. It is all about Jesus. And we gotta walk with him and honor him. Amen?